Let's pray. Father, as we read this portion of your word and consider it, as we give attention to it, we pray that your speaking voice may be heard. We need to hear from you. We have heard a lot in this past week, all sorts of headlines and information. We come tonight to hear from our God. So come and cleanse our hearts. Renew a right spirit within us. Help us to take heed how we hear. May thy kingdom be extended by the preaching of your precious word. Would you come to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 29. We're reading tonight from Exodus 29, beginning down in verse 38 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Amen. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. We've seen it uh, so far as we've been working our way through that worship is the main concern of the last half of Exodus. And I suspect that you've gotten the point that worship is important. It's not insignificant in the life of God's people that, you know, Exodus begins with this wonderful, powerful, you know, account of, of, of how much God wanted his people to be with him, that he, he sends Moses, who survived a, a deadly king, who survived the wilderness for 40 years, he comes and he leads the people out to these magnificent plagues that the Lord puts down on the people of Egypt, the, the, the Passover, this mighty and terrifying deed of slaying of the firstborn children that were not covered in blood. He brings them out, and what does he talk about for the next 20 chapters? How to build a tent, and what kind of clothes the priests are supposed to wear. And what to do on particular days of the year in terms of bringing lambs and, and how to build a bronze basin and, and what to do on the Lord's Day. Maybe not as exciting as that 
exodus from Egypt. This is why he brought them out, so that they might have relationship with him. And so as we discuss and as we work our way through these chapters, and and tonight especially as we sort of hone in and consider how we come to God and then how we approach the Lord and how he has established for that to take place, it's important to remember that these things do not only talk about corporate worship life. When we talk about Exodus and we see these principles of worship and we see the regulative principle at work, indeed, this does give us um, a perspective on our own worship that when we come together as God's people, we do only that which He has prescribed and nothing else. But there is much more at play here that what God is prescribing for the Israelites is their entire life before God. And so also for us, our entire life before the Lord is not to be lived however we see fit. Right? The regulative principle is not just for when we're inside these walls. The regulative principle of worship, that we worship God according to His terms, is for all of our life as His people. And that's what we'll see tonight, is that God has dictated how we approach Him, how we come to Him. And if we do not come in this way, we cannot come at all. In the beginning of chapter 29 last week, the Lord gave instructions for the ordination of Aaron and of his sons to their priestly office. And tonight in, in these verses, um, the Lord begins to describe the work that these men will do. As priests, they will facilitate the regular daily worship of God's people. And, and the people, as they come through a priest, the, the question is asked and here answered, what do the priests do as they represent the people? What's their function? What's their regular work? You know, they show up at the office on Monday morning, and what is it that they're called to do? And that's what these verses describe. We have the regular duty of the priest, and then attached to it down at the end is the purpose of this worship sort of summarized before we get into the next chapters. There's three main parts of this passage. There's an explanation of the priestly duties and the daily sacrifices. There's a declaration of the Lord's approval of this form of worship. And there at the end, there's that clear statement on the purpose of worship. So an explanation um, of the regular sacrifices, a declaration of the Lord's approval, and a clear statement of the purpose. Um, Before we get into these these three sections will once again point us to Christ. Remember, that's what all of this is doing. All all of these aspects of Israel's worship are meant to preach, not just to us in the New Testament. They're meant to preach even to those in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. They're, They're preaching about the way God will redeem them in the long run. And as Exodus is it's all about worship, one of the main ideas that should be coming through to us as we read is that we cannot worship God apart from the work of Christ. We cannot come to Him. We cannot be His people. We cannot exist in reconciled relationship with Him apart from Jesus. Let's jump into it. First, there's this explanation of the regular daily Sacrifices. The regular burnt offering that's described there in verse 38 now is this is what you'll offer on the altar two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. 39 describes 
a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. There's a drink and a grain offering along with each of them. This, this regular daily sacrifice, these two lambs, these, this process is at the core of the sacrificial system. This is the heart of Israelite worship. That every day, two lambs are offered at the tabernacle. You know, there are, you may be thinking to yourself, well, aren't there a whole lot of other sacrifices described? Yes, indeed, there are many, many, many other sacrifices described in the Old Testament. There are certain types of offerings and sacrifices for certain types of sin. And in this particular case, there's certain types of sacrifices for certain times and occasions. Later on, before you go to sleep, you can go and read Numbers 28 and 29. And what you'll find there is a list of all the different occasions for offerings. All the different places in the year that require different types of offerings. So you'll see things like um, the Sabbath. There's an offering for the Sabbath. There's an offering for the month. There's an offering for the Day of Atonement. There's an offering for the Passover. There's an offering for each of the feasts, the, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booze and the Feast of Trumpets. There's offerings for all these particular occasions, but at the top of the list, at the very beginning of Numbers 28, is basically repeated what we have here, these two morning and evening sacrifices. And there's two things that we should observe about these sacrifices. The first is that the bloody character of them. This is a surprise, we're talking about blood again. The bloody character of these sacrifices and the regularity of these sacrifices. But we really need to be struck by the necessity of blood. If that's not communicated in these last chapters of Exodus, what really is? That there's blood everywhere. It's on everything. This particular sacrifice, this daily requirement of one lamb in the morning and one lamb in the evening, was, you know, it's not, it's not excessively demanding on the people. Right? Among the congregation of Israel, they could supply quite easily two lambs per day for the necessary sacrifices. But nevertheless, even with just these two lambs, and, and, and certainly with the other sacrifices that would have become necessary from, from sins of the people and from the other occasions of worship, even with just these lambs, there was always blood flowing before the tabernacle. The priest was always, always smearing blood on everything. We've talked about it. He's got to put it on the horns of the altar, and they've got to sprinkle it on the priests when they're ordained, and he's got to make sure that he pours it out on the ground before the altar. He's got to make sure he burns up all the, the guts and the entrails of the animal. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a messy, messy thing to come and worship God. But, but the blood and the death, that's present in this worship is God's way of preaching to them and it still preaches today that our sin carries a penalty of death. These two lambs proclaim the sinfulness of mankind. They proclaim what Paul can state so clearly that the wages of sin is death. Over and over and over again they speak to the people. But the lambs, they also preach about God's mercy. Every day reminded that for God's people, the Lord will provide a substitute to die for them. Every day reminded that they must die, and every day reminded that God has put someone in their place to die for them. 
the blood does speak of the horrible nature of sin, but it speaks louder of God's mercy. It shouts louder of God's mercy that he does not require the death of his people, but instead accepts the blood of another. The blood of Old Testament worship proclaims the sin of the people, but it also proclaims the mercy of God. And we can't ignore the blood, but neither can the regularity of these daily sacrifices be overemphasized. So so try to pair them together. Regular uh, bloody sacrifices, reminding of sin and mercy, but they're always to be offered. There's never an end to them. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. There's no end to it. There's no finish. Day by day, regularly. One commentator sort of had a passing reference to the wicked kings of Judah and Israel as he talked about the regularity of these sacrifices. It really was interesting to me, so I went and looked and you remember how, how wicked the kings of Judah were after the division of the kingdom and how much more wicked were the kings of Israel after the division of the kingdom in the Old Testament. So many men in power who despised the Lord and hated his worship, who polluted their office, who did not follow after God. King Ahaz uh, reigned in Israel at one point. It's recorded of him as he comes to power. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Reprehensible. What he did in seeking after false gods. So disgusting was his perspective of the Lord's worship that Ahaz commanded the high priest Uriah to build a a replica of the bronze altar in Damascus so that he might sacrifice there and yet even then when Ahaz built this false altar on which he would perform false worship he still commanded that morning and evening burnt offerings be made on it now we're not trying to commend him in in any way if you look through the Bible Ahaz is, is not the guy to be like okay but the point is that so the, the sacrifices here explained in Exodus 29 are so ingrained in the life of God's people that even when wicked kings engage in false worship, they still retain a portion of what they had been taught. That what is going on here is to be regular and continual over and over, over and over over and over again. The regularity and the, con- the continuation of these sacrifices cannot be overemphasized. They were always to be offered. Now, if the presence of blood in the sacrifice speaks to the horrible nature of sin, the constant offering of blood points to the greatness of our sin. One lamb Let's say even one day, two lambs, wouldn't cut it. 
one in the evening, one in the morning, and then the next day needed another and another and another. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we continue to bring lambs to bleed before the Lord in our place. Now, bear in mind that that sin is not so great because of the greatness of the offender. You know, your sin is not so bad because you're so impressive. Our sin is so great and so wicked and heinous and wretched because of the one against whom we have sinned. We have sinned against an infinite God and so lambs must be brought day by day regularly. And even this will not suffice. This is why the lambs preach about someone else. Because they can never do it on their own. You start to see maybe how, how Christ fits into all of this as the fulfillment of the Old Testament system. That in the death of Christ, listen, in the death of Christ is found the end of the endlessness of the sacrificial system. That system which could never find an end on its own, Christ brought an end to it. This is why Paul writes in Hebrews chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10 is great at being a proof text for why we don't need Exodus 29 anymore. We still need it teaches us why we don't worship this way anymore. But what good does it do us to know all of this? Well, the truths that are proclaimed in the Old Testament sacrifices are still true, but now they are simply preached to us from the cross of Jesus. The things that that the lambs proclaimed to the Old Testament believers, the cross proclaims to us, your sin still carries a penalty of death. The cross of Christ proclaims to you what Paul puts so clearly. The wages of sin is death. The cross also preaches about the mercy of God. That for His chosen people, the Lord has provided a substitute so that you will not have to die. The cross, yes, it speaks of the horrible nature of our sin but just like the lambs it speaks louder about the mercy of God that he would send his son to be your substitute not just a lamb not even just the best lamb from your flock but that he sent his one and only beloved son to die for you so that you wouldn't have to you don't need lambs aren't we glad Tim and I don't talk about it enough how grateful we are that we don't have to be butchers You don't need a lamb. You need the one to whom they point. Jesus, who is the greater, the better, blood sacrifice, the one who has died in your place, who has granted you entrance 
into the presence of God. This is what the lambs preach to us. It's very interesting what happens after he gives this prescription for worship. Beginning in 42 down through 44, the Lord sort of stamps his approval on this form of worship. Look at 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. He's almost sort of rehearsing everything he's given them up to this point. These verses function as, as God's approval of what has come already. The Lord is declaring that, that these regular offerings that are taking place outside the tabernacle which is the place where he will come and be, that these things, these regular acts of worship that that are being performed by the men he has consecrated to this purpose, all of this, God says, I approve and I sanctify by my glory. This is the way it will be done. This is what I approve for you to do as my people. He's given his instructions, and now he reflects back on them and says, this is where I will pour out my blessing. This is where you will come and know me in these ways. He is pleased with what he has given them to do. And for us too, the Lord has established the proper way of our approach to him. No one can approach God apart from Christ. I know it feels like we're making a jump. It may actually just be too much to get into here, so we're going to make the jump. The way used to be lambs. What does Jesus tell us in John 14, 6? Not lambs. Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The the lambs were the way in the Old Testament and many other things that needed to be put to death on behalf of God's people. The lambs were the way, but now Christ has come. He is the way. If anyone desires to find a relationship with God, it must be through the Lord Jesus Christ who has opened the way to God. And, And what this necessarily means, this is where we're trying to draw it into some application, what this necessarily means is that no one should ever expect to find God outside of Christ as he's presented in the scriptures. We cannot get to God in any other way than through Jesus. This is where we need to say that all other religions are wrong. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, They're not coming to Christ. It's not real. It's not true. It's false and wrong. And all the other religions that do not proclaim Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners as He's presented in the Scriptures, these are wrong. But you know, false religions are the easy ones. It's easy to condemn the false religions. We must also condemn all other forms of Christ that are false. So that Christ that the Mormon religion proclaims false the Christ of of the so-called church at Rome false 
the, the Christ of the Jehovah's Witnesses false. Not the Jesus of the Bible. Neither is Jesus the one who's presented in movies and TV shows that are now becoming popular in our world. The only Christ is the one who is proclaimed in the pages of the Word of God. All others are false. This is what we're saying. Just as the Lord approved the form of worship, the, 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 the way of approach here in the Old Testament through these lambs, just as He approved this way, so also in Christ He has approved the way for us. The, the only way of approach to God is through Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And no, no one, no one, no one comes to God but through Him. This is why we need our Bible so bad. This is why you need to dedicate yourself to this book. Y'all know I don't like preaching on occasions, but let's use the new year a little bit. This is why this year you need to dedicate yourself to these pages. I mean, what if one day Tim or I stand up and we preach a Christ that's not found in here? God forbid. May it never be that that happens in this pulpit. But if it does, you need to know. You need to be Bereans. You need to be people of the book so that you know the Christ who has saved you and who loves you and is bringing you home one day. You need to know him, the only way of approach to God. It feels a little unusual in this you know, long section here at the end of Exodus for God to kind of stop you know, he still has more to say about some pieces of furniture, the ways they're going to pay for some of these things. The anointing oil and the incense, you can read the headings of the next chapter. Seems a little bit strange that he would stop, but he stops here after explaining how the priests will function, and he, he reminds us of the purpose of worship. Not just the purpose of the worship of the Israelites, but the purpose of worship in general. Look at 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the purpose of the tabernacle. This is the purpose. All of these instructions on how the people should worship God, this is the purpose, that God will be with them. God will be with them. And this isn't news to anybody. It's not news to them. It's not news to us. Back in chapter 25, verse 8, the Lord said, Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. This has been God's intention this whole time, but we really shouldn't let it become commonplace. It is a remarkable thing. The God of heaven should condescend to dwell with men. I dare say we may take it for granted, this language of God with us and God dwelling. 
you know, the New Testament's made it so clear, and, and we, we praise the Lord for making it so clear. Something like John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, this, this principle of Emmanuel that we see in the pages of Exodus is, is so clear to us now that Christ has come because it's been made so clear by the New Testament that God intends to dwell with us and indeed came and dwelt among us in a very real, tangible, bodily way. What a blessing that God would condescend to, to dwell among His people. But, but let's not take it for granted. And let me ask you this question. Is there any more to it than that? Is there any more to worship than just that, that we would see Christ who came down and find salvation in Him? Is our, is our redemption, is our worship just about getting to Jesus and getting relieved out of hell and, and, and then one day we die? The text here seems to indicate that worship is all about knowing God. Do you see verse 46? And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. That's the purpose of his coming to dwell with them, that they shall know that I am the Lord their God. I brought them out of the land of Egypt that, that expresses purpose, so that I might dwell among them. Now, the knowledge that God is speaking of, knowing him, it's not just intellectual knowledge, that's an aspect of it that we would know about God. Can you see in the way he writes and we see from the rest of the texts and other places that we've already covered that God wants to be in relationship with his people? The beloved apostle calls it fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God. That worship, as, as, we, as we come before God to worship him together and as we live our lives before him all of our days seeking to come toward him in the ways that he has appointed, all of our life is fellowship with God. The prophets spoke about it. Zechariah chapter 2, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. The Lord says, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst. He says, one day I'm coming and I'm going to dwell with you. Jesus spoke about it in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Revelation tells us that our whole life after this one will be one of fellowship with God. John writes in chapter 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the purpose of the word enjoy in our first shorter catechism. Fellowship with God. What is the chief end of man? It's, the divines didn't believe for a moment that our chief end was to know as much about God as we possibly could. That's a mischaracterization. You've got to read the question to know that that's not what they're talking about. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him 
forever and to fellowship with him forever if they'd permit me and edit. Our life as God's people, as he's redeemed us from sin, is all about fellowship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's, here's where we tie it all in together. God has given us our way of approach. He has laid it out for us. Just as he laid out the way of, of the, the regular lamb sacrifice, so also in the New Testament he's made clear to us that we must come through blood and the blood of his son is the only way. We approach in Christ and, and he has established this way as the only way and the blessed way and the right way and we come to it through the ministry of the word and the sacraments and the discipline of the church and the purpose of all of this the purpose of our coming to God, the purpose of Him coming to us is that we would know Him and love Him and walk with Him. This is our chief purpose and our chief end, to fellowship with God. As much as a preacher wants this to be a text where you can talk about all the elements of worship that we still do now, it's not the place, but I'll remind you. Where do you come and find the Lord? You come in Christ, and it's through the ministry of his word proclaimed and the administration of the sacraments, and it's through the discipleship and the discipline of the church. This is how God draws near to you, and this is how you draw near to him, to the ordinances that he has established. Won't you seek after him? Won't you, won't you draw near to the God who's drawn near to you in Christ? May God help us. Amen. Father in heaven, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, send your Holy Spirit now to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Teach us what it is to worship you in Christ, to come to you in him. Remind us again and again of the great thing that you have worked through the blood of your Son, that we have access to you. I praise you for what you've done. Refresh our faith again, even now, as we move into this new week, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.